Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy for employers to connect with their applicants. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applicants who match their sponsored job descriptions. Visit Indeed.com Peter and start hiring right now. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just the biggest businesses. For a 14-day free trial and to get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to Shopify.com gold. U.S. stock markets have had a pretty decent-sized rally over the past three days, including another rally today, although this one was not nearly as broad as Monday and Tuesday, although the Nasdaq did manage a gain of better than 1%, almost 1.3%. The catalyst there, I guess, was Netflix coming out with earnings after the bell yesterday and the streaming service announced that they lost fewer subscribers than the markets had anticipated. I think just under a million or something like that. Maybe they were looking for 2 million subscribers lost. I mean, it's really not great news, but investors are looking for a reason to buy stocks. And I guess if you don't have a good reason, you take whatever reason you get. Now, I think one of the other reasons that the markets have been rising is more and more people are starting to believe that the rate hikes are almost over. And in fact, when I did my podcast over the weekend, most of last week, all the talk was how the Fed was going to go by 100 basis points for the July hike. Well, a lot of that talk has been taken back 
over the past couple of days. And I think most people who were talking 100 basis points are now back at 75 basis points. And I suppose that is a bit of a relief for the market. But if we get the 75 basis point rate hike, that's still going to leave the Fed funds at between two and a quarter and two and a half. Right now, we're still at one and a half. So we're talking about two and a quarter. But a lot of people think that there's not much more behind that. Maybe another 50 basis points in September and maybe another quarter of a point after that to get to around 3%. But pretty much everybody thinks that's it that the Fed's not going to have to go much beyond three, if it even hits three, in order to take care of this pesky inflation problem. Well, first of all, forgetting about inflation for a minute, if you remember back in 2018, the highest the Fed was able to get rates before the wheels came off the bus was 2.5%. That really caused the markets and the economy to tank, and it forced the Fed to immediately halt the rate hikes. And then ultimately, rates were reduced. The Fed initially called it a mid-course correction, but eventually we went all the way down to zero, and the Fed went back to a massive quantitative easing program, which more than doubled the size of the Fed's balance sheet, up close to $9 trillion, which is about where it stands today. The point is, If the market could not handle a 2.5% interest rate in 2018, why can it handle it in 2022? Because we clearly have a lot more debt now than we had four years ago. The economy is far more levered today than it was then. And so if it couldn't handle a 2.5% rate back then, well, it certainly can handle it now especially when you consider how much weaker the economy already is than it was in 2018. In fact, we never actually got into a recession in 2018. Now, we probably would have had the Fed continued to hike rates, but the Fed reversed course and the recession didn't materialize. Well, we're probably already in a recession right now And the Fed hasn't even gotten rates up to 2.5% yet. They're still at 1.5%. In fact, the Atlanta Fed yesterday revised its Q2 GDP forecast down again. It's now minus 1.6%. That matches the 1.6% drop in GDP in the first quarter. So if the Fed is hiking rates to 2.5% or 2.25%, while the economy is already in recession, isn't that going to be more damaging than when the Fed hiked rates up to 2.5% in 2018 and the economy wasn't in a recession? It was in much better shape than it is right now. In fact, one area of the economy that is exceptionally weak is housing. Now, even though home prices continue to set new records and we're up you know, 20% year over year. Look at some of the data that came out this week. On Monday, we got home builder sentiment and that index plunged by 12 points down to 55. That 12 point plunge is the biggest one month drop in the 37 year history of this survey with the lone exception of April of 2020 
which is a clear outlier because that was the beginning of the COVID lockdowns. And so everybody's got extremely pessimistic early in 2020. And that's the only month that we saw a bigger drop in home builder sentiment than the drop we just got in June. And as a matter of fact, the record high for that particular sentiment survey was 90. And that was in November of 2020. So we had a huge rebound off of those lows. Why? Well, because the Fed slashed interest rates to zero. People were able to get 30-year mortgages around 3%. And a lot of people wanted to buy new homes. They wanted to get out of the city. They wanted to get into the suburbs. They wanted more space. They needed more room to be locked down. They needed a place for their kids to be when they couldn't go to school. They needed a home office. So because of all that extra demand, we had this record high for home builder sentiment. Well, now it's crashing. And in fact, I think soon it's going to hit a new record low because the problem is people can't afford to buy these new homes. That is the biggest problem. It's not that people don't want homes. They just can't afford them. And they can't afford them for two reasons. One, the prices are way up. But two, the mortgage rates are way up. And so they can't afford the monthly payments. But also, all the other costs of home ownership, insurance, maintenance, taxes, they're all up too. Meanwhile, potential home buyers are struggling with rising food prices, rising energy prices, rising rents, whatever else they've got to deal with. So they have less money available to pay these high home prices or to handle a higher mortgage rate. So this whole home building market is going to implode. And you know what it's going to take down with it? A lot of jobs. A lot of people work in home building uh, and not just in the construction, but in the sale. People work for realtors. People work in mortgage banking. Then people help people redecorate and there's all sorts of jobs ancillary jobs that are part of the whole process of people buying new homes and moving into new homes well all that's going to stop people are going to be stuck in the homes they have and so a lot of those jobs are going to go away in this recession as it gets much much worse plus today we got the numbers for existing home sales for june and the decline was greater than expected. In fact, this was the fifth month in a row that home sales dropped. Prices keep rising, but sales keep falling. The average annualized rate was 5.12 million, and that's down from 5.41 million from the prior month, which actually was revised down a bit to 5.395 million. But the estimate for June was from between 5.15 and 5.5, so below the lowest end of the estimate. The month-over-month drop was 5.4%, and that exceeded the 3.4% drop in the prior month. And if you look at the year-over-year number, which last month stood at a decline of 8.6%, that number is now a decline of 14.2%. But I want to circle back, though, to the point about the Fed being able to successfully fight off inflation by moving rates up to two and a half, three percent, because that seems to be the conventional wisdom that that's really all we've got to do. And that's why I think you have some optimism now. Investors think they see the light at the end of the rate hiking tunnel. Now, they don't realize that that light is an oncoming train 
and they're going to get hit by that train eventually. But the idea that two and a half or three percent is going to do it, to me, it makes no sense that people can even believe that that would be possible. Inflation is at nine percent. Now, I would agree, and this is probably one of the other reasons that the market is rallying, that we're likely to see some type of decline in the year-over-year rate of inflation off that 9.1%. I would imagine that that could hold up as the high watermark for a few months. Because if you look at what's happened to energy prices and some other commodity prices, there's been a bit of a decline and that should find its way into the CPI. So we can get some short-term relief. And I think a lot of people will look at that as a sign that, okay, the problem is over. And the Fed may even try to look at that decline in the inflation rate and assume that it's going to continue and that it doesn't really need to keep hiking rates, that it's already hiked them enough, especially if the economy is in a recession and people will believe that inflation is going back down to 2%. But it's not going to come anywhere near 2%. I mean, maybe it'll pull back from 9% to 6%. That's still triple 2%. But assuming that inflation does pull back to only up 6% year over year, how is the Fed supposed to fight that 6% inflation with 25 to 3% interest rates? You're still talking at 3%, an interest rate that's half the inflation rate. You're talking about a real interest rate of negative 3%. How is that supposed to alter spending and saving patterns in the economy? It's not like a lot of people are going to think, wow, I could get negative 3%. I'm going to save some money because losing only 3% a year, that's a lot better than losing 6% a year. Now that I have the prospects of only losing 3% a year on my savings, well, I'm going to stockpile money. I'm going to defer my consumption and I'm going to save so I can only lose 3% a year. Nobody is going to think that. People are still going to be looking at a negative 3% rate as a reason not to save. I better spend my money because if I hold on to it, it's just going to lose value. Even if I earn some interest, the interest isn't nearly enough to offset the increase in prices. So you're not going to change saving and consumption patterns with negative 3% interest rates. So you're not going to make a dent in inflation. If anything, you're just going to make inflation worse because the nominal increase in interest rates feeds through the cost structure for businesses and consumers and ultimately helps push prices higher. The only way the Federal Reserve is going to make a real dent in inflation, apart from making interest rates positive, getting real interest rates above the inflation rate, which is never going to happen, but the other thing they need to do is really shrink the money supply. They need to withdraw all this liquidity that they poured into the economy. They need to suck that liquidity back out. But they're not doing that. They've barely done any quantitative tightening, and I don't think they're going to do any. In fact, a lot of the people who are looking at the rate hikes and thinking, well, they're almost done, they're not even talking about quantitative tightening because that hasn't even begun yet. And if the Federal Reserve really were to follow through with its commitment to shrink the money supply and reduce its balance sheet, that would be extremely negative in the short run for the economy. It would put tremendous upward pressure on interest rates, not just the short end where the Fed is hiking rates, but at the long end 
of the yield curve. The 10-year, the 20, 30-year treasuries would have to move up dramatically from where they are now, which is hanging out around 3%, if you have massive budget deficits and not only the Federal Reserve not monetizing any of those deficits, but competing with the Treasury and shrinking its balance sheet, forcing the Treasury to sell even more bonds to repay the Fed. The current forecast for the deficits is like 1.7, 1.8 trillion. That's what the government is forecasting. But those forecasts are not even close to reality because they forecast a growing economy. They don't forecast an economy in recession, which is what we've got. So there's all these rosy scenarios that are built in to the budget forecasts. Well, a more realistic forecast is going to give a budget deficit well above $2 trillion, maybe $2.5 trillion, maybe even closer to $3 trillion. How are we going to finance that type of deficit without the Fed? We're not, which is why I don't believe the Fed is going to follow through with quantitative tightening. I think once this economy is in a recession and there's more upward pressure on interest rates, the Fed is going to go back to quantitative easing. It may not slash interest rates right away, but I don't think it's going to have a choice but to go back to QE, especially with the midterm elections looming in November with an economy in recession, there's going to be a lot of pressure. And maybe the Fed will be able to take some cover in the fact that the inflation rate has come down. And even though it's still above 2%, they can pretend it's going to keep on falling on its own, that the Fed is already vanquished the inflation beast with its aggressive hikes up to two and a quarter, two and a half, and that the recession will do the rest. It won't. In fact, the recession is going to exacerbate the rebound in inflation because of all the extra money that the Federal Reserve is going to be creating during that recession to stimulate the economy. And yes, ultimately, the Fed is going to be taking back some of these rate hikes. But even if it doesn't take back those rate hikes, if inflation continues to move higher and ultimately moves above 9%, then real interest rates are falling even if nominal rates aren't rising. And again, when you're talking about a year-over-year inflation rate, that comes back down to 6%. Remember, you're talking about cumulative increases. If prices go up 9% one year, and then they only go up 6% the next year, well, you're talking 15% over two years. That is a huge increase in the cost of living. And of course, it's even bigger when you factor in that it's probably 30%, not 15%. The real increase in the cost of living is more likely double what the official CPI reveals. That is enormous when your cost of living is up 30%. That's like you've got a 30% pay cut. Now, I get it. People's pay has gone up. People have gotten wage gains over the last year or two, maybe 3 4% a year. But that pales in comparison to the increase in the cost of living. So let's say your wages went up 10% over a couple of years, but your cost of living went up 30%, that's still a 20% reduction. And you're talking about people who were living paycheck to paycheck before their paychecks got so much smaller. How are they making ends meet? Well, I talked about it in a prior podcast. They're taking second jobs. They're taking third jobs if they already have two jobs. Some people are working two full-time jobs just to make ends meet, and they still can't do it. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. One of the greatest feelings you can get as an entrepreneur is when you start building a team of people who care just as much about fulfilling your dreams as you do. If you want to find the people that have the skills to make that happen, and if you want to find them faster, then you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help help you do it all. You can find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed's Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. One of the things I like most about Indeed is how easy it makes the hiring process and Indeed puts you in control of what you pay. You set your must-have job requirements and then only pay for the applicants that meet them. Then there's a transparent flat fee per application and you can pause your job posting whenever you want. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applicants who match their sponsored job descriptions. So visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. All this talk about the Fed getting closer to the end of the tightening cycle certainly took some wind out of the dollar's sale. The dollar fell pretty sharply on Monday and Tuesday. In fact, yesterday, 
the dollar index got as low as 106.4. Now that's still a pretty high number and the dollar index rebounded today to close just over 107. I think the key on the dollar index for a reversal is to get back below 105 because that's really where the breakout was and we had that run up above 109. So we'll see if it gets back up to the 109 area and makes a new high. If it can't do that, and if it can go back below 105, then I'd say the high is in and look out below. Because as I said on the last podcast, the fundamentals do not support a strong dollar. I don't care that speculators are buying the dollar and you've got this speculative mania in the U.S. dollar. I mean, people have bought crazier things in the dollar. People will buy anything if they think it's going up. But eventually, the fundamentals are going to cause the dollar to tank. Now, one of the things that may have happened over the last couple of days is that it looks like Russia is going to be able to be making some natural gas shipments into Europe after all. I was reading a lot of stories last week, really horror stories about these gloom and doom forecasts, especially for Germany and how the whole economy was going to implode without natural gas. You know, Germany uses a lot of natural gas, not just because consumers use it to heat their homes, but Germany makes a lot of stuff. They have huge industry in Germany. In fact, their chemical industry and their pharmaceutical industries combined use about one third of the nation's natural gas. So when you're making a lot of stuff, you need a lot of energy to make that stuff. And of course, a lot of that stuff is not only consumed in Germany, but it's exported all around the world. So there were some very dire forecasts, and I think now those forecasts are being walked back given the fact that there's going to be some natural gas. Not really sure what the Germans are going to be paying for it. Obviously, they're going to be paying a lot more money, but the key is it's not about the cost. They just need it. But obviously, if they pay more for it, it's going to bleed its way through the cost structure, and Germans are going to deal with higher inflation and people who buy German products are going to be paying higher prices for those products, but at least the products are going to get made because they're going to get the natural gas. So I think that might have taken some of the pressure off the euro, which allowed the dollar to drop and the dollar index to come off the floor. But none of that benefited gold. In fact, the price of gold today was weak all day and sold off and closed pretty much on the lows. Gold was down close to 20 bucks today it closed below 1700 This is the first time it's traded below 1700 let alone closed below 1700 Now, the gold stocks were down today too, but they didn't make a new low. I don't know if that's significant or not. It still, to me, looks like there's some downside here, although maybe we're just blowing through the final stops below 1700 because everything that we're talking about, the Fed coming to the end of the tightening cycle, the fact that the U.S. economy is basically in recession. I mean, it's amazing to me. I still listen to all these economic forecasters talking about the possibility or probability of a recession. This year, people are saying, oh, maybe it's a 40% chance that we have a recession this year, maybe 60% that we have one by the end of next year. I mean, aren't they looking at these numbers? I mean, the Atlanta Fed is saying we're in recession right now. Now, maybe they're wrong, but you have to think there's better than a 50-50 probability that they're right on Q2, and they think it's negative 1.6. So they could be wrong in that it could only be negative a half, 
and we're still in a recession. So how people could think the probability of a recession is so low when we're basically already in one right now doesn't even make any sense. But obviously, once we're in a recession, then everybody is going to acknowledge that the probability is 100%. And then the only question is, is it going to get worse or are we just going to come out of the recession? And clearly, if the Fed was able to put the economy into recession with 1.5% interest rates, in fact, actually lower than that because we entered recession when rates were a lot lower than the 1.5% they're at now, if the Fed continues to raise rates, then the recession is going to get much worse. And of course, as inflation takes a greater toll on the consumer, real spending will come down and eventually so too will employment. And if we're already in a recession with very low unemployment, imagine how much worse that recession is going to be when we have normal unemployment and then high unemployment, which of course is where we're headed. I also want to mention Bitcoin, though, because true to form, as actual gold was going down, fool's gold was going up. In fact, earlier today, Bitcoin was back above 24,000. It's been rising along with a lot of the tech stocks, although as I'm recording later on in the day, we're back below 23,400. There was some significant news, though, about Bitcoin when Tesla released its earnings after the bell, it also announced that it has now liquidated 75% of the Bitcoin that it had purchased. Now, everybody made a big deal about Tesla and Elon Musk's commitment. He was a long-term hodler. He had diamond hands. Well, not really, because as he was talking about how committed he was to holding on behind the scenes, he was unloading his Bitcoin. Now, we don't know exactly what price he got for the Bitcoin that he sold, and I'm not really sure if he made a loss or a profit, but what's more significant is how tentative his commitment was. He's already sold 75% of what he bought. He's far more likely to sell the last 25% than buy any more. So he was the one big example of a corporation that was following Michael Saylor's advice and putting Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Well, 75% of the Bitcoin that were on Tesla's balance sheet are no longer there. Elon Musk replaced Bitcoin with fiat currency. Another piece of negative news that has the potential to weigh on Bitcoin is the fact that Mt. Gox, which was the big exchange that got hacked back in 2014, is close to returning about one quarter of the Bitcoin that people lost. Now, I think this is a huge windfall and it's likely going to produce a lot of selling because the Bitcoin that are being distributed are worth close to $3 billion at today's market prices. Now, if all of that ends up getting distributed, I'm not sure if all of it will be, but I think most of it is going to get sold. Because remember, when people lost access to their Bitcoin back in 2014. I think maybe Bitcoin was worth around $500 a coin, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. So if someone had 20 Bitcoin, they had $10,000. Well, even if they only get five Bitcoin back at 24,000 of Bitcoin, you're talking about $120,000 
which is 12 times more than the account was worth when it had all of its Bitcoin. Now, I think a lot of these people who had Bitcoin at Mt. Gox, I think a lot of that Bitcoin would have been sold along the way anyway. People would have cashed in and taken profits, but they couldn't do that because they didn't have access to their coins. Well, the minute they regain access, I think just like Elon Musk, a lot of those Bitcoin are going to be dumped. The problem is who's going to buy? because it won't be Elon Musk. Don't you just love that sound? That's the sound of another sale happening on Shopify. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. So supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com gold all lowercase. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just the biggest of businesses. And it's customized just for you, giving you a great looking online store that brings your ideas to life and provides you with the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. In fact, I love how easy Shopify makes it for anyone to successfully run a business. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale and every 28 seconds another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify so get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience required gain access to powerful tools to help you find customers drive sales and manage your day-to-day gain the knowledge and confidence with the resources that you need to succeed plus with 24-7 support you're never alone it's more more than just a store, Shopify grows with you. These are the possibilities and they're powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase, to get a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com gold right now. But I want to finish up today's podcast by commenting on an interview that I watched up on Kitco News this is David Lynn interviewing Professor Stephen Hankey. And he interviews Professor Hankey a lot. In fact, I commented on some of the things that the professor said on a recent interview. And I wanted to comment on this one too. And Professor Hankey is one of the better professional economists out there. And the reason he was being interviewed was because he had correctly forecast that inflation would get as high as 9%. He said that inflation would peak out between 6 and 9%, and we got to 9.1%, so he's taken a deserved victory lap, although he seems to believe that he's the only person in the country that was forecasting inflation would hit 9%. I guess I must be chopped liver. And it's not just me. There are a lot of other people beside me that were talking about high inflation, so I don't know how he thinks that he and his partner were the only people in the world to have gotten this inflation call correct. Although I do think that he's ultimately going to be incorrect and in that I think inflation is going to end up a lot higher than 9.1. But he thinks it's peaked out and he does think that we're going to pull back. But where he disagrees with a lot of the Pollyannas out there is he doesn't think it's going anywhere near 2%, at least for the next several years. He's talking about maybe a pullback to the 5 or 6% range which would still be very high inflation, very problematic for the bond market, and which means the price of gold should not be going down. It should be going much higher if we're going to continue to have such a high rate of inflation that well exceeds 
the interest rate. But the two things that I want to talk about from this interview were two points that the professor made that I really disagree with. And I like pointing out areas where I disagree with people whom I otherwise agree with. Because there are plenty of people out there that I never agree with because they're complete fools and everything they say is wrong. But at least you got a smart guy like Professor Hankey. If he says something that I disagree with, well, I want to point it out. One of the questions that David Lynn asked the professor to explain was the supposed dichotomy between the high standard of living in the Nordic countries, let's take Sweden in particular, and other countries, despite the fact that Sweden is this big welfare state and has such high taxes, presumably much higher taxes than the United States, most people would believe that the tax rates in Sweden are higher than they are in the United States. But for some reason, the Swedish economy just shakes off those higher rates and manages to deliver a high living standard and high personal satisfaction for Swedes. Well, what Hanke's answer was, he said, well, that's because Sweden still really believes in free trade, so they benefit from global trade. And he talked about how they have a homogeneous population. They don't have a lot of minorities. And to some extent, that is a reason for their prosperity. And I would admit that the Swedish population is a partial reason for why the economy is able to handle the welfare state. But it's not the most important reason. What I really wish Professor Hankey had pointed out was the fallacy of high taxes in Sweden. Because most rich people living in the United States pay higher taxes than the rich people living in Sweden. And I wanted to talk about the U.S. tax rates versus the Swedish tax rates because very few people seem to understand. Now, the number that makes big headlines is the top marginal income tax bracket in Sweden, 52%. And that looks really high. The government is taking more than half of the top income. And of course, you have to earn a lot of income. It's somewhere above 500,000. I'm not sure exactly where the bracket starts, but you're pretty rich before you start turning over 52% of what you earn. I agree that is much too high a rate. I'm not saying that Sweden has super low taxes, but they're lower than the United States, at least when it comes to the rich. Now, a lot of people say, what do you mean, Peter? We don't have a 52% income tax bracket in the United States. Sure we do. If you look at the typical person, let's say who lives in California, California is the most populous state in the country. It's better than 10% of the population, and it has a lot of rich people. More than 10% of the rich people in the country live in California. So let's take a look at how the marginal income tax rates in California compare to the socialist Sweden. Well, the top federal tax rate is 37%. But then you got to add that 3.9% Obamacare, which pretty much applies to everything now. So you're talking about just over 40% federal. But California adds 13.3% on top. And remember, you can't deduct any of that 13.3% from your federal income tax. So you have to just add it right on top. 
And so if you add the federal and state income tax burdens together, the top income tax bracket in California is 54.2%. That's 2.2 percentage points higher than it is in Sweden because they don't have a state income tax in Sweden. They just have the national income tax. So people living in the People's Republic of California, they are paying higher marginal taxes than the people who are living in Sweden. So you can't say that taxes in Sweden are so high and then forget about the fact that they're even higher in California if you're trying to be confused about why they still have prosperity in Sweden with such high taxes when you're not questioning why there's any prosperity in California when the taxes are even higher. But that's just the income tax. What about capital gains? The Swedish capital gains tax is 30%. Well, in the United States, it's 20%, but then again, you got to add that 3.9% Obamacare, and so it's actually 23.9%, except not if you live in California, because California adds 12.3% capital gains. So the true capital gains tax rate for people living in California is 36.2%. That's quite a bit higher than the 30% capital gains that people living in Sweden pay. So again, California, much higher taxes. What about corporate taxes? Well, the corporate tax rate in Sweden is 20.6%. That's lower than the 21% corporate tax in America. But again, if you're operating a corporation in California, you got to add another 8.8%. So now you're talking about 30% corporate tax rate in California versus 20% in Sweden. So the corporate tax rate is 50% higher in California than it is in Sweden. So how are we talking about such high taxes in Sweden when they're so much higher in California? But here's where you get a huge difference. The estate tax and the gift tax because Sweden has none. There is no gift tax. You can give away as much money as you want in Sweden and pay no tax. And I don't care how rich you are. You could be a billionaire in Sweden. When you die, your heirs pay nothing. There is no tax coming out of your estate. That is huge when you consider that the United States imposes a 40% gift tax and a 40% estate tax. Now, a lot of states tack on their own gift tax and estate tax, but California is actually one of the states that doesn't do that. And so since I've been using California as an example, I'll just stick with California. But if you live in California, you're looking at an estate tax of 40% and a gift tax of 40%. But if you're living in Sweden, you're looking at an estate tax of zero and a gift tax of zero. So that is a substantial reduction in the overall tax burden, especially when it comes to wealthy people because wealthy people are the ones that pay the lion's share of the estate tax and the gift tax. In fact, if you're not wealthy, you're not paying anything in the estate tax. It's only for the wealthy, at least for now. Over time, of course, with inflation, more and more people that are a lot less wealthy are gonna end up falling into that trap. But the point is that Sweden doesn't even tax inheritance at all. Now, they did at one point, but years and years ago, they got smart and they eliminated it. 
So Sweden is not this super high tax economy like people believe. The reason that Sweden is able to overcome the welfare state is because you have enough capitalism in Sweden to overcome it. Now, Sweden would be better off if they got rid of all this socialism that they still have in their economy, free health care, free college education, all sorts of cradle-to-grave welfare programs that exist. The Swedes would be better off without them. But you know, one thing, the average Swede probably does pay more taxes than the average American. The average wealthy Swede pays lower taxes. Middle-class Swedes probably pay higher taxes than middle-class Americans, but at least they get a lot for it. I mean, they get that free college. They get the free health care. So that's included with their taxes. Americans have to pay high taxes, and then they have to buy expensive insurance on top of that. Now they have to pay bloated costs for college on top of that. So when you add all these costs together, the American is worse off than the Swedes. Now, Sweden would be even better if they had more capitalism and less socialism, but the reason for Swedish prosperity is not because of the socialism that they have, but because of the socialism that they don't have and the capitalism that they do have. And I really wish that Stephen Hanke had done something about pointing that out during this interview because it's such a big myth that is always repeated that the secret to the success of Sweden is how much government they have and how high their taxes are when the opposite is actually true. Now, the second thing that I want to disagree with Professor Hankey about is the standard of living of the typical American because in his conversation with David Lynn, David was pointing out the big increase in the price of various goods from 1970 till today And after they talked about how everything was so much more expensive, David asked a professor, do you think the average American has a lower standard of living than he did back in 1970? And Hankey's response was no, that we have a higher standard of living today because we have a lot of things that we didn't have back in 1970. And he used televisions as an example. He talked about how so many people have so many TVs now. And, you know, back then in the 1960s, well, maybe you had one television, maybe two if you had more money. You had one in the bedroom and in the living room. But now, you know, we have TVs in every room and they're bigger and we have a lot more stuff to watch. And so that's one of the reasons that we have a higher standard of living because we have more and larger televisions and we could stream Netflix. But I think he's got it wrong. I don't think the average American has a higher standard of living than the average American did, let's say, in the 1960s. Yes, I would agree that there has been some advances, technological advances, and I think there are certain products that have been improved over the past 60 years. But I think the only real things that most Americans have today that they didn't have in 1970, at the end of the 60s, were smartphones and personal computers. Because I think most of the stuff that we have in 2020, we had in 1970. I mean, during the 1960s, people had televisions. I mean, they didn't have as many, but they had them. But they also had radios, they had stereos, 
They had automobiles, air conditioning, telephones. There were airplanes. We had indoor plumbing, electricity. People had washer dryers, dishwashers, refrigerators, toasters, blenders, vacuum cleaners, home stereo system, all sorts of things that if you go back to 1900, you go back 60 years earlier, pretty much nobody had. I mean, if you compare the difference between the average American family in 1900 and let's say 1960s versus 1960 and the 2020s, I would say that there was a much greater increase in overall living standard during that 60-year period than the more recent 60-year period. And that was because we had a lot less government during that time period. And so we had a lot more prosperity. I mean, think about it. I mean, they had electricity in 1900, right? I think it came around around 1880, but very few people had electricity in their homes in 1900. The vast majority of Americans were still using candles to illuminate their homes. Imagine that. Also, indoor plumbing. Yes, they had indoor plumbing, but not in 1900 for middle-class Americans. I think around 1920s, 1930s, it started to be more commonplace. But in 1900, most people had an outhouse, and they didn't even have indoor running water. They had a pump outside in a well, and that's where they got their water. People lived a much different life in 1900. They had horses. They didn't have cars. If they had any transportation at all, they had a horse. And so you're talking about candlelight, horseback, outhouses, pumps, no air conditioning, no appliances. Maybe you had an icebox. If that, you didn't have a refrigerator. You had to do your laundry by hand. You didn't have any of these appliances or things that made life better that everybody had and took for granted in the 1960s. So I would say that, yeah, sure, we've got some improvements, but those are natural. They're going to happen in capitalism. But I think we would have a much higher standard of living. I think we would have far more improvements, much better technology, if we had maintained the low level of taxation and regulation from 1960 to 2020 that we had from 1900 to 1960. Now, clearly, towards the end of that period, we started to get more and more government, and that took its toll, particularly in the 1970s. That's really when the degradation began. But the point I really want to make as to why I believe that living standards are lower today for average families is because prior to the 1970s, go back to the 1950s and 1960s, one man who didn't even go to college, in fact, you didn't even have to graduate from high school. All you had to be was a man and have a job and you could support a family. You can afford a wife that did not work outside the home and you can afford to raise your children. The average man can't even come close to doing that today. He can't support his wife and he can't support children without his wife's help. And if you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, most families had more kids than they have today. That's because women got married younger back then than they do now. 
So they wait till they're older and then they don't even have kids right away because even though they have a job and their husband has a job, they still can't afford their first kid. So a lot of people are not only postponing marriage, they're postponing having kids and then they have fewer kids than they would like because they can't afford them. I think that represents a huge decline in the living standard when now you need two paychecks to do the job of what one paycheck used to do. I think now the fact that you need both the husband and the wife to have full-time jobs, and in fact, some of them actually have multiple jobs, if that's what is required to pay the bills, whereas in the 1960s, it only took one person, and I don't care really if the person who works is the man or the woman. I mean, if the woman wants to go out and get a job and the husband can stay home and take care of the house and do all that, that's fine. I'm not trying to be sexist and saying we need to go back where men worked and the women stayed home. That may be the case for some households. That may not be the case for others. What I'm saying is it would be an improvement if we can go back to a time period where only one person had to work and the other person had the luxury of staying home and taking care of the house and taking care of the kids. The fact that most people can't do that today is a big decline in our standard of living. Now, if you go to much more wealthy households, it's far more common for the wife not to work and to stay home with the kids. And that's because her husband makes enough money that she doesn't have to get a job. Well, back in the 1960s, just about every husband made enough money so that his wife didn't have to go get a job. You can't do that today. You have to be very rich before you can have the same opportunity offered to your spouse that the average guy could offer his spouse in the 1950s, 1960s. And that is an opportunity. The fact that women have no choice, the fact that married women have to work, that's not being liberated. People want to talk about women's lib and yeah, that's why they're out there working. No, they're working by necessity, not by choice. When you're liberated is when you don't have to work. If you can choose to work because you really value that career, that's one thing. But if you're forced to work, if you've got a job waiting tables or working as a cashier, nobody is doing that because they love that career. They're doing that because they have to pay the rent because they have to put food on the table and the only way they can do that is to go get a job. Well, women in the 1960s didn't have to make that sacrifice because their husbands can afford to support them. Now, what is the difference between now and then? The difference is government. Government was a lot smaller and so the taxes that families had to pay to support that government was a lot lower. Now you have this massive government that is very expensive, but also this huge government has made the economy less productive. And because we have a less productive economy, we have a lower standard of living for the people who are living in that economy. And so when you get professors like Stephen Hankey trying to ignore the fact that the average American has seen a decline in their standard of living by ignoring the important fact that you can't really ignore that you have two people working instead of one. Imagine what would have happened in the 1950s if a lot of those women started working. Sure, the households would have had a lot more money to do a lot more stuff, but they would have lost something else in the process. And by the way, another fact that I think is very important is back in the 1960s, families didn't have a lot of debt like they do today. They were able to pay for all the things they bought out of their incomes. 
They didn't have big credit card debt. They didn't have all these student loans. They didn't have big car loans. They didn't have massive mortgages. In fact, people actually paid off their mortgages in the 1950s and 1960s. That was the whole idea behind a mortgage. You paid it off so that when you retired, you no longer had a house payment. Well, now when Americans retire, if they ever retire, they have an even bigger mortgage than when they first bought their house. That's because they kept taking out second mortgages and kept refinancing with bigger amounts. So nobody is getting out of debt. People have all sorts of credit card debt and auto loans. People today are drowning in debt. What they don't have is savings. But the average family had a lot of savings back in the 1950s, 1960s. So the fact that families are in much weaker financial positions now than they were then is another sign of a falling standard of living. Now you could say, well, but Families have higher net worths. Yeah, all these net worths are a function of inflated asset prices. But those inflated asset prices can deflate very quickly. But what will be left is all the debt. So there are two clear signs of a decline in the living standard. One is that now you need two people to work, whereas back in the 60s, you only needed one person to work. But even with two people working, they still can't cover the costs. They have to go deep into debt. So it takes the paycheck of the second person plus debt in order to make ends meet, pay the rent, put food on the table. You didn't have to do that in the 1950s, 1960s. The average husband could not only support his wife, but also build up a savings for his retirement in the process not have to go deep into debt and be able to look forward to a comfortable retirement. Today, very few Americans are going to look forward to retirement. In fact, I think retirement in America is going to go the way of the single income household. Just like at one point, pretty much every American was able to retire, our standard of living is going to be so low that only the wealthiest Americans are going to be able to retire. It's not going to be something that the middle class can look forward to. Just like at one time, middle class households only required one person to have a job outside the home, at one point, the average middle class workers were able to retire. Well, now middle class families need two people working. They no longer have the ability of just one. And I think soon the middle class are also going to lose the luxury of retirement They're going to be working every day until they drop dead. And you're going to have to be very rich to be able to retire, just like a man has to be very rich in order for his wife not to have to have a job. 